Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. I'm Vern Blazek, and today we're going to have a little different kind of podcast entertainment for you. Today's guest will be Dr. Kevin Polta. He is answering questions that he's received but also wanted to provide you with some tips for communication in the times of COVID-19. Now, it's a little bit different because he had guests who canceled and other podcasts that were ready to go, only some vital information was missing. So, we're turning lemons into lemonade. And here is Kevin Folta. Hey, thank you. Yeah, we're going to do things a little bit different today. Um, as uh, Vern mentioned, we uh, had cancellations, and that's okay. I mean, people are busy, but uh, we have a really good one next week uh, where we just needed some more information about how you could participate, and uh, that was the last thing left out. So anyway, it gives us a good opportunity to do things a little differently, and the good part about that is there's a need to do some things, and we all have some important Homework to do. I'm a professor in real life. I'll, I'll give you some homework to do. Okay, so here's what the homework is. Um, we live in a time of a pandemic. And I, I really feel that a lot of the reason why the pandemic is, uh, is worse than it is, why we have more widespread death and more widespread uh, propagation of disease, is because of communication. And I really feel that you as a science enthusiast, the best thing you can do is engage others about COVID-19. Now, 70% of people, they get their news from social media, right? So the, the BS around COVID-19, it's everywhere. It's just awful, especially if you go into Twitter and you look at the hashtags like, um, you know, fake pandemic, uh, fire Fauci fake crisis you if you look at these hashtags in the content underneath them you see how pervasive the misinformation really is now the problem is while there are probably millions of people pushing false information or bad information or simply believing bad information and sharing it there is very there are very few who are working in the area of correcting that information, misinformation. So I do it. Um, I spend way too much time uh, trying to correct it. And, and uh, I think everybody needs to do that, especially because, and we'll talk about at the end, is that I've been kind of taken out of the conversation. This is somebody else's game now. And here's the point. A quick uh, review about how we communicate around sensitive topics with others that uh, do not accept evidence, right? Um, the old story that I talk about in communication is uh, you can't use evidence 
to convince somebody of something if they don't make decisions based on evidence, right? So how do we do it? We have to do it around values and around what we feel is important. So always talking about the need to protect the most vulnerable. The fact that the racial disparity of a pandemic, that you see people who are in uh, compromised communities, uh, that are socioeconomically uh, compromised, uh, being affected adversely. And in the United States, that tends to be minority communities. So that's um, something that I think is really important, I think, uh, to correct, you know, to to not let injustice spread to uh, the management of a pandemic and the uh, associated symptomology of a disease. So these are things that I I think we start with, with our, with values. But then the other important part here is to remember that when you engaged the most ardent anti-COVID person, (laughs) I guess that's what they would be, anti-COVIDs, you have to remember that you're probably not going to change their mind. In fact, they're going to dig in their heels and find other evidence that supports their claim, no matter what crazy website it comes from or how it's misinterpreted from the scientific literature. So this is where we have to be really careful in how we do it. And remember, you're not trying to change their mind. You're trying to change the mind and add perspective for one of the potentially thousands of people that are going to read your response to a disinformation post. So this is the idea. You're using your skills and knowledge and communication to give the other side of the story. And the reason this has been such a disaster is because of the asymmetrical nature of the disinformation. And we saw it with, you know, genetic engineering. We saw it with climate. We see it with um, vaccination. It's always this asymmetrical thing. But with COVID, it's happened on a much more compressed timescale. And when you analyze the methods used by the anti-COVID folks, they're identical to the methods used by the folks in those other areas. And so for me, it's been fascinating to watch. So what I'd like you to do is to engage. And I want to give you some ideas about some of the recent stories or a couple of recent things that uh, I've engaged about and and how I've done it. Okay, so here we go. Um, The first big one, and this is a really important one to dive in on, is the idea that this is pretty much over. (laughs) Um, I think most public health um, experts would say we've only just begun. Um, The numbers, although down, are still way too high. And we're still looking at 4,000 or so new infections every single day in the United States. Uh, It's not where it was, but it still is way too high. We may even be seeing a little bit of an uptick. If you look at the uh, moving average, you know, where they combine the last seven days together and see where it goes, a little bit of an uptick. And that may be because of the kids going back to school, students in universities, whatever. Um, We don't know how much the kids will vector the disease home. We know that they um, can be infected and they can have very high titers and presence of the virus and can they actually go home and infect their parents or grandparents or whatever and so these are really important numbers Um, 
And they don't show a lot of symptoms, even when they're highly infected. So there's a lot of questions about that. It will be resolved soon. But the, the main point here is, is that the pandemic is not over. And we see people getting very relaxed about uh, distance and masks and things. The only preventatives we do have to solve the problem. There's places I live. I live kind of in the country. And out in the counties around where I live, uh, nobody, everybody thinks this is just a joke. It's just a hoax. And it's pretty amazing when you go out there. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit frightening. Luckily, the population densities are low. People kind of keep to themselves anyway. But it's one of these things that I think um, is going to continue to raise uh, presence in rural communities. And, and I think uh, something for us to keep an eyeball on. The other thing that came out this week was circulating in social media was that only 6% of people die from COVID-19. Now, what the heck does this mean? And I I had so many people post this on my pages and um, around other places and say, aha, see, you're wrong all the way along. You know, this is just a joke. Only 6% of people die from that. Um, and, and I guess what they were saying was that uh, only 6% of the deaths in the today 100 and approaching 90,000 deaths, only 6% of those were from COVID-19. Okay, that, that's what this whole thing actually means, which means people would say, well, look, it's far less worse than the flu. So why are we shutting down everything? Okay, let's think of it this way. If, if you have a heart condition, yeah, just uh, whatever, you know, you get arrhythmias, you get some sort of heart condition, and, and you die when a safe falls on you from a second story window, you didn't die of a heart condition. Okay, <laughs> so here, here we go. When they draw up a death certificate. There's a couple of lines on there where they talk about the cause of death, and they usually list primary and secondary causes. So if you have no other issues that would um, be comorbidities or complicate COVID-19, uh, they just list um, COVID-19. You know, if you're like, like you know, the 30-year-old soccer player, the 25-year-old ath uh, swimming athlete, the you know, people who, who have very, very low likelihood of contracting this thing um, and having problems, um, that, that's what you would put, COVID-19. But lots of people die from other types of respiratory distress. They die from other types of problems that are associated with, that, they, that are associated with uh, being augmented because of the presence of the virus. And they will list as a primary cause respiratory failure. <laughs> They'll put, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, pneumonia or asthma, whatever, on that first line, which is really the main reason they died because you know that was, uh, that was the underlying cause of death. Couldn't breathe anymore. And then the second line put COVID nineteen, or maybe not put that anywhere. The bottom line is is that people are are dying that would not have died otherwise if it was not for the presence of the virus. So when someone says it's only 6%, it's only 6% that where COVID-19 and the virus were the only identifiable and detectable pathology that led to the death. 
and also the way a physician or uh, whoever fills out the certificate, the way that their conventions, their personal conventions work. Do you talk about the acute physiological reason of death or do you uh, talk about the broad spectrum underlying condition? You know, so there's a lot of wiggle in here. But we know that when you're saying that when someone in in that 190,000 number, that number means that the virus contributed to the death. Like the, um, so like the safe falling from that second story window, even though there was other things that uh, other aspects of, uh, of physiology that were not correct. The thing that ultimately killed you was that acute and severe event. All right, so that that's, uh, clears that up. I hope that helps a little bit too. The other one that you see, and it's piped down a little bit, but just for what it's worth, is the discussion around hydroxychloroquine and, uh, and Fauci. And people will say, well, clearly it works, and it's being the information around this miracle cure is being suppressed for political reasons and because of the drug companies just want you to buy expensive blah, blah, blah. We know this story. You know, heard it before. Here's the deal. When you have the discussion around hydroxychloroquine, you have to first start out with singing its praises. It works as an outstanding antiplasmodial. It is fantastic in the use, in the treatment of malaria uh, it is extremely well tolerated by the body. It is low toxicity, low collateral effects uh, in a normal, healthy person or person with malaria. Even um, it, it has been prescribed millions of times, millions of times. Uh, it's been around for forever, um, or at least chloroquine, uh, and then hydroxychloroquine is one of its derivatives, or well, a one of its. Um, I guess it's parallels. It's like aspirin and ibuprofen. They both do two, the same thing as an NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, but they do it differently. By a little different, well, they do the same thing with a slightly different chemistry. Ibuprofen is molecules decorated a little differently than aspirin. It gives it a longer half-life, a better interaction with its interaction part places. Hydroxychloroquine is the same concept. It's a version of chloroquine that is a little more effective, and it works great for malaria. And if you start your conversation by talking about that, you know, giving it some cred, you know, it's not a a total long shot that this would be true. But then you have to turn to what we know about its effects with COVID-19. It hasn't worked with sufficient numbers, and it hasn't proven to be effective in treatment of, uh, of uh, COVID-19. It didn't work for Ebola. It didn't work for HIV. Uh, the reason that people think it may have worked for viral diseases is because it disrupts uh, aspects of endocytosis, which is where part of the membrane of the cell folds in with a piece of the, with the virus attached. And, and there's aspects of, of HCQ that uh, don't allow that to happen correctly. So it, that's a very simple way of describing its mechanism. But, but it do, could, does have a plausible way in which it can work. But it has not been shown to work. And then people who are severely compromised 
it's actually has been shown to cause uh, additional problems with uh, cardiac events. So it's one of these things that they said, well, we best not push this because there's no evidence that it works. Uh, it's plausible, but uh, probably not. And if there's a chance that it's killing people, even if it's rare, uh, probably not the best thing to be using. So, um, you know, the, but the, the folks online will tell you, but look, even Fauci said it's positive. Even Fauci says it's good stuff. And it comes from an article that was published in 2015. And a paper published by, um, I think Fauci was even an author on this, where they did a test in vitro, which means they, they, they looked at chloroquine and they looked at the SARS uh, coronavirus, so the SARS-CoV, the first one. So what they did was they treated primate cells in a dish. They either treated them with hydroxychloroquine, no, with chloroquine, and then treated them with the virus, or they infected them first and then treated them with chloroquine. And what they showed was that there was evidence that the cells were protected by chloroquine, that it served as a prophylactic, worked great, and it also had a, a, a way of eliminating the, the viral infection from the cells. And so this was, I think, 2005, maybe. This is a little bit old paper. And Fauci himself said inside the paper and other places, the, the team that published it, said that it could be um, used potentially as a prophylactic or um, uh, therapeutic. And um, that, that was the limit of that work. Unfortunately, this is picked up by the conspiracy folks who look at it and say, look, right here, you had a prophylactic and a cure, a preventative and a cure. Here you had it. And, and it was uh, the Fauci guy who, who found it. And why are we ignoring this? He even says it's, it's, it works that way. It's because people are not a Petri dish. We see this all the time. Uh, they do this in uh, genetic engineering studies where they'll say we put glyphosate or BT in a Petri dish with cells and at high, super high concentrations, it killed them. Well, so does distilled water, Windex, and sugar. I mean, you, you anything you do to disrupt the cells, cells in a dish are a pretty sensitive environment. And it's not to say the studies are bad. It says that the studies are a first step. And it's where you start to learn how, how a drug or how some sort of compound is affecting things at the cellular level. You start to use this as a first step to understand how it's going to work, if it works in a human or an animal before you go to animal mo models. You first look in that Petri dish, and, and that is, is how this works and how the, these kinds of in vitro data are so frequently misinterpreted. So get in online, go to hashtag fire Fauci <laughs> and, and engage this stuff. I mean, there, you got another good one there that is really important to uh, push back a little, not because you're going to change someone's mind, but because somebody else is probably watching and wondering who to trust. You need to make that you good stuff. The next part is that, uh, People are not getting the flu shot. On a good year, 50% of folks get it. And this year, um, it's more critical than ever. And, and here's why. 
Um, last year, it was something like 34,000 people died from the flu. The year before, it was probably closer to 80,000 people. I don't remember the numbers. I should have done my homework. <clears throat> but the big deal is, is that flu plus COVID-19 is going to present a number of problems because influenza A infections and uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections have some symptom overlap. Now, the other interesting wrinkle in this is that we have to get a different flu shot every year. And I talked about this on Science Facts and Fallacies with Cameron English on the other podcast I do about why that happens. But suffice it to say is that we have to protect ourselves from a different viral presentation every single year. And this year, well, well, let me step back. We make the prediction of what is coming by observing what is happening in the winter, which is in the Southern Hemisphere right now. So they're understanding when it's summer and spring here in the North, it's, uh, it's um, winter in the South, and they're having their flu season. And we can start to look at what is circulating and likely to be up here later. And this year in the Southern Hemisphere, not much of a flu season. So it makes it very difficult to predict what's coming. Why did they have a rather slow flu season? Well, one hypothesis is COVID-19. People are wearing masks. People are avoiding close social situations. People are not you know, gathering in large groups and, and, and propagating the virus. And the flu virus is a respiratory virus that travels on droplets and all that good stuff, just like COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. COVID-19 is the disease, the symptom spectrum that comes from a SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay, so I, I sometimes get that wrong. So is it that in the South, people started to understand that, that they could slow the spread of influenza? I don't think anyone realized it. Is that why the incidence is so low? And I bet you it is. I, I bet that's part of it. So it makes it more difficult for us to guess what the correct one is. The problem is obvious is that if we already see a burden on the healthcare system in terms of costs and facilities from influenza A, and influenza and uh, COVID-19 patients share a common need for common facilities and common equipment. So ventilators, ICUs, you know, all that stuff, that has a chance to really become taxed with the collision of these two independent diseases that share some symptom overlap. Um, right now, there looks like there's over 200,000 doses, or 200 million, 200 million doses of flu vaccine. Now, that may become scarce, that's enough to get, you know, one out of 66% of the people here in the country. Um, that's not everybody. and Probably not enough to give good herd immunity. But you don't want to get that shot too soon. You want to run out and get the shot. You want to get this done. Don't get it too soon. Um, we talked um, on the other podcast about how the immune response, when you look at the response to the flu influenza virus, it, it peaks and goes down. No one's really sure exactly why, but that's what happens. And if you get that shot too early, like August or September of 2020, 
I guess you can't go back in time and do it, but let's say September. It may be waning when you get into January and February. So maybe there, well, experts are suggesting October. Go get it in October. Make sure you get it in October, and um, and that way you'll have plenty of uh, residual immunity to at least make a uh, influenza event a little less severe. The other big issue on this is that most people are getting their vaccinations through some sort of work-related infrastructure. So, you know, you get them at the office, your employer brings them in, you know, they want everybody to be healthy and present for the holiday season, blah, blah, blah. Um, I know at the university where I work, we get them there. But this year, people are not in their workplaces and in their universities necessarily as we're teaching remotely or, you know, working remotely. So now you have to go find one and either get it at the health uh, county health center, um, which you know has its drawbacks. So you're going to CVS, going to Walgreens, whatever. You have to track one down to get it. The other issue is the cost of the vaccination because it's not free. And where I live, it's fifty bucks. Even if I got insurance, fifty bucks. And for people without insurance. And for folks in other compromised positions, even if you have insurance and have a $50 copay during this pandemic where so many people are out of work or have lower salaries, that's a pretty high price to pay for a flu shot. And they may be willing to forego getting it uh, in order to uh, save a few bucks. But county health departments do have them. They cost less or are free there. Uh, there's other ways to get free vaccination and you need to look those up. And I, I'll, and it varies from place to place. So it doesn't make sense for me to attempt to uh, list them here on the website. So bottom line is get your flu shot this year. Physicians are extremely concerned that the presentation of both diseases could be very strong, synergistic, you know, one plus one equals five. The other issue is that, uh, how do you know if you have influenza or COVID-19? And that will be another challenge of the testing system. Um, how, do, how do doctors, how do physicians treat you without knowing exactly what the problem is? Because so many symptoms overlap. So bottom line, get every vaccination you can. Get that flu vaccine. Get, get it and do it. The other thing we'll touch on real quick is the idea of the uh, of the uh, vaccine for COVID nineteen, and there was a story that came out this week that said um, you have uh, that, that the CDC is telling state and county health departments to be ready for a vaccine by November first, and that's an optimistic target. And that's okay. Uh, we spoke on uh, an episode recently with someone from Moderna that says that the phase three trials are going well. A number of people have been infected. And so what's happening, I think there's three companies now that are in phase three trials. And what this means is that they're actually injecting the patients or humans with the vaccine. Then they will trace those people. You either get a vaccine or a placebo and then they look at the incidence of COVID-19 infections in the placebo and in the vaccine group. And if those numbers show a statistically significant difference, they will likely look for emergency use authorization to roll out 
the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, the problem is, is that COVID-19, even though it is a prevalent and pressing problem, is still relatively rare in, in a way. I mean, there's, there's, it, 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 a lot of people are getting infected, but not everybody all the time because of the steps we've taken to limit the disease. So the people who are now vaccinated have to somehow run into the virus. And then they have to show symptoms, which we know a lot of people can be asymptomatic. So it really makes it a challenge to think that we'll be able to generate statistically relevant separation or evidence of of decreased incidence among the vaccinated versus the placebo-vaccinated groups. However, it could happen, and I think uh, November 1st is not a... Um, unlikely target. I mean, that could happen. You, you know, October, they've got 10,000 people who've been vaccinated. If if a 1,000 of them uh, come down with it and none of them are from the vaccine-treated group, that might be a pretty good indicator that something's going on. So th- that's the last bit of COVID debunking for you to do. Some people are saying it appears to be a political thing because it's right before the election. Maybe, maybe not. But I tend to give the scientists the benefit of the doubt here. You have companies working 24-7 to create this vaccine. It's possible that we may have a vaccination as soon as November, maybe December, January, whatever, but soon. And if that's the case, it will require your participation in the communication. And they've even said this with the CDC and other uh, agencies that are involved here, is that, uh, that, uh, that you need to be able to have better communication focusing on the public benefit and your personal obligation to protect other people. And again, we know that this disproportionately affects minority communities. We know that. So you have to be able to uh, um, focus on the idea that if we're going to care for each other and protect each other and protect our economy and protect small business, the best thing you can do is keep your distance, wear the damn mask, and roll up your sleeve and get that vaccination. And let the science do the talking. I volunteered to be in the pool for the uh, vaccination trial, phase three trial. They haven't called me yet. I may be you know, out of the park because either I'm too old or not in the right place to have access to the trial. Um, could be. But please, be prepared to engage the folks who say they will never get the vaccine ever because it's too much too soon. It's exactly the same thing that every other vaccine has gone through only with a compressed timeline because right now they're manufacturing it. They're not waiting for approval. It's being manufactured and stockpiled as we speak. So upon approval, healthcare workers, frontline workers, um, uh, critical care folks, um, you know, police and paramedics, they will be vaccinated first. That may happen very soon. So keep that one in mind. Two other things I'd like you to think about um, the public comment period on uh, on the American chestnut that resists chestnut blight. Um, Dr. Bill Powell has invented this tree. There's a public comment period right now that's open and needs your input. 
the crazies usually pack these things full of comments, and it's not happening here. It's ha- well, Good science is there, and you can be part of that. So go over to regulations.gov, put in the search term chestnut, and go ahead and add your name to that list and talk about the benefits, the scientific benefits of repatriating a, a forest with the trees that were supposed to be there. The other thing is to buy the book DNA Demystified. A lot of folks say, what's the best way to start learning about molecular biology and DNA? I think it's fascinating. Where does it, where do I start? Alan McEwen, Dr. Alan McEwen has really made that book and it's a, it's fantastic because it talks about the fundamentals of DNA, but also talks about um, a lot of the applications, modern applications in things like 23andMe and a lot of the ethical considerations around the subject of DNA. So it, it, that's available. I bought mine on Amazon and did a review, and I was one of just a couple reviews. And I think people are buying the book. But, you know, get in and write a review. You know, throw the guy a bone for this because he did a really nice job. I'm going to conclude with a um, kind of a historical note um, and why it's so important for you to be out communicating the information and uh, working against the disinformation around COVID-19. So I'm talking to you from September 6, 2020, and it was five years ago today that an article about me appeared on the Sunday front page of the New York Times. Um, you know, my big stupid face right there, and there's a little subhead there that said um, that I trade grants for lobbying time. Quid pro quo, that companies give me grants and I go to Washington and talk about how the companies are so wonderful. Um, it's a really damning allegation for a scientist because it, it, it's a way to remove their voice from a public discussion. And it, uh, in the days of the internet, it's with you forever. So why is it even a thing? Well, at the time, from like 2010 to 2015, I was gaining a little momentum as being a trusted source of information. I was getting more speaking gigs. I was getting lots of media time. I was asked by magazines for you know opinions on genetic engineering. Uh, I was on the Joe Rogan podcast. I was getting more time with other folks like Cara Santa Maria, other other good visible venues to talk about the benefits of technology, just like we do here on this podcast. There were many who felt that that must be stopped. And I became the target for, of a very aggressive campaign to remove my voice from a scientific conversation. And when I look back and read that article today, um, it, it, it appears to be such a clear clear hit piece. It's just horrible. Um, First of all, it's illegal for me to lobby. I can't lobby, but I do have an obligation to speak to uh, political leaders about these topics, and I can do so in a scientific and and balanced way, as long as it's scientific, and answer their questions, give presentations that talk about the realities. That's not lobbying. I'm not lobbying for a certain company. I'm talking about technology and what it is and what it isn't. I've done that a few times on Capitol Hill. Um, and uh, so that's part of it. The other part of it was at the time, there was no grant or payment to me personally from any big company like that. Uh, 
it, it was it was made up that that was the case. We did have money that came to a science communication program that I was leading, um, but that was to allow me to do more of it. None of it went to be paying me or whatever. And so, yeah, there was some kind of gray area there that there was a communication program at my university that got 25000 bucks that the university gave back, well, tried to give back, ended up having to donate to a food pantry. But money was never used. It was, you know, not... But the story uh, came to light because of an organization called U.S. Right to Know. And they've become more, less impactful over the years. A guy named Gary Ruskin. And Gary got together all my emails and essentially assembled a story of me being an underhanded problem um, who was just a, uh, you know, corporate shill, a guy who was being paid by companies to lie about science so that companies could uh, line their coffers with more money while people were dying and environment was being destroyed. This was his, his line. And he took my emails and put together a package that kind of gave a story, wove them together in a way, a little bit here, take a little piece here, take a little piece here. And he handed those to a reporter at the New York Times called Eric Lipton. And he mentioned that, uh, Lipton mentioned that on the Kojo Namdi show on September 17th, 2015, that he received the basis of the story from Ruskin. Um, Later, he would say, and, and I'll tell you more about this. Um, well, let me just tell you now. So the article was so damning and the problems were so bad that I sued the New York Times and Eric Lipton. And under sworn deposition, he said that it wasn't his interest to do it, that Ruskin was insisting that he do it, um, that they had a lot of back and forth and conversations about why it was necessary to do it. Um, and and this is this was the basis of... Uh, the interest in the story. Lipton covers things like lobbying and that kind of stuff. So Ruskin knew this was right up his alley and could get him excited about writing the story. Um, under oath, Lipton said that I was not a lobbyist. He said there was no grant. So the basis for the story about lobbying for grants for lobbying um, was out the window. Uh, he also said that the original piece that he put together was here's how you know Kevin Fulta is a, a, a you know liar and corporate shill and how he's a, you know disgusting under the table problem. His editors made him widen the article and include other people, including folks from uh, uh, the anti-GMO movement who work in universities, who well one who worked in association with a university, who his whole salary and research was paid by uh, industry and he publishes what are widely to believe be very biased and skewed misinterpretations of data and false information. Um, You know, such as there's no consensus of genetic engineering. You know, those are papers that he writes. And so they put him in there, make it look like balance. But when they talked about him, they talked about, you know, this guy who, you know, uh, uh, works with the organic industry. And uh, and then when they talk about me, I was a vicious advocate for uh, biotechnology or corporate biotechnology, whatever he framed it as. But basically the whole thing was very strong that I was this corporate pawn, which is nothing could be further from the truth. 
Yes, we work with corporations. Yes, that's our job as land-grant scientists. We're supposed to work with industry. That's what we are supposed to do by our mandate under the Morrill Act in 1962 or whatever it is. And uh, nothing wrong with that. If I'm going to support farmers, I need to understand what companies are doing. Well, anyway, this whole article rolled out five years ago today, and my world collapsed. At the time, it went everywhere. Um, even people I knew who were very close to me, who I haven't seen in a while, you know, wrote me a nasty gram, um, saying, nice story. You know, people I knew from science, you know, what happened to you? Um, that kind of thing. Some of those relationships never even came back. But there were threats. There were things put on our local Craigslist, you know, which at the time was you know a place where you could write, here's what's going on. Uh, but people trying to wrote some really bad stuff about me with the idea of trying to foment some sort of local aggression against me and my, my family and all that stuff. Um, I had meetings that I was scheduled to speak at canceled. Um, it was online harassment. We had to have police patrolling the building where I worked. I was traveling and had to deal with the domestic terrorism task force because of credible threats um, about what was going on. And it changes your life because you get you have to walk with a certain paranoia. And I shouldn't say really paranoia as much as vigilance. Paranoia might be unfounded where vigilance is, has rationale. And, uh, you know, like one time I received a package in the mail that I wasn't anticipating and... I took, picked it up with barbecue tongs and left it outside and left it out by, you know, back behind the house, you know, behind some cinder blocks and stuff. And, uh, you know, figured I'll let it sit there for a little bit. And if it explodes or oozes or whatever it's going to do, it'll do it there. And about a month later, I got an email from a friend who wrote, did you get the book I sent you? <laughs> but this is what it's like living under that series of threats. And it was a crisis. It was a total crisis. And, uh, you know, we had to make some decisions. Well, you know, I could talk about other things, too, that were supposed to be happening. Um, you know, even last year, I was eliminated from a local seed school where I volunteered to teach classes to a local gardening group. And after I prepared lectures, like, it took me three full days to prepare lectures, they eliminated me from the program because of that article. I used to do talks in grade schools, one a month at least, where I would go to grade schools and, and share something cool. And I was eliminated from grade schools. As though some parent probably wrote in and said, we don't want this corporate mouthpiece teaching my kid. It was cancellation, right? It's cancel culture 101. Remove somebody's voice from an important conversation. And the thing was, the lawsuit, I lost. Judge threw it out. Judge said, uh, I am not about ready to make a finding or give a jury to somebody where the New York Times would be described as fake news. And his words were very similar to that. I mean, almost exactly. So it was the kind of thing where in our current political climate, where the word fake news gets thrown around left and right, when the New York Times generated a story that wasn't exactly true, that the judge wanted to insulate the integrity of the First Amendment 
by saying reporters have the latitude to report and we're going to give them some latitude with respect to getting it right. Um, it's amazing what is still online regarding this, the original story and all the supporting material taken so out of context. And um, it has affected things for me because when I, this week when I was talking on a, uh, uh, there was a, again, one of these garden groups on Facebook where someone said, I'll never get the COVID-19 shot. And 30 people said, me neither. I'm not rolling up my sleeve for big pharma. And I had to put in my two cents and say, you should. Do it to protect others. Do it to protect the most vulnerable. If it's approved and it's safe, we need to participate in a public health remedy to protect the people who would be most affected, to restore an economy, that kind of thing. And uh, it went back and forth a few times, and then here comes the article. Fulta's just a corporate chill who lies about science. Cancelled. And that will follow me to the grave. This is the big difference between when negative information or libelous information would come out about you in the past. It would come out in the newspaper, and then that newspaper was in the recycle bin. But in the age of the internet, libelous information stays with you forever. And that article, I will never outrun that article. And all the awards and all of the good things I do, all of the media I produce on my own time, uh, the things I do to share science, none of that matters as long as that article is there to cancel me. And this is an additional sad irony. Because folks like Ruskin and Lipton and uh, the folks that uh, oppose genetic engineering, um, the people in SciComm especially, we really are on the same team for most things. And maybe we have disagreements about one kind of science that they find unacceptable or whatever. You know, they don't like me personally, whatever. But now, five years later after they've, you know, torpedoed my credibility. Now, I'm probably on their team with respect to COVID-19. That we both want to curb the spread, protect the most vulnerable, to bring back economies and return to normalcy. And now they have officially taken out, or at least severely diminished, the opportunities for somebody who has the capacity to make a significant difference. So this is really the collateral effect of cancel culture. When you cancel somebody, make sure that you're not canceling somebody who may be one of your allies. I'll still participate. I'll still do more. I'll try to dial it up. And that's the decision I made at the time was I either fade away and shut it down or I ramp it up. And I've ramped it up. Lots more coming. But because my voice has been taken out of this equation, that means you need to step it up with your voice. You know, it's gone on and on. I mean, there's even been people in SICOM who've targeted me, who, you know, for whatever reason, um, professional jealousy, whatever, I don't know. They feel it's not my place to be participating in communication. Um, it's really weird, and, and I won't name them by name because I, I don't want to take away their voice. 
you know, I'm glad that they are participating and doing something. And so, you know, I can disagree with them personally and vehemently. Um, and I think what they did was awful, but you know what, let's, you know, why would I take out somebody who's trying to do the right thing? Even if they don't have that calculus. So that's the other lesson here. Be careful who you throw under the bus because it may just be the bus driver. <laughs> so it's so hard to say how that works. So basically the bottom line is, is that my voice in all of these matters is severely compromised. I have your trust because you tune into the podcast every week. And I want you to now participate in that wider conversation. Go out and speak to others about science communication, especially around COVID-19. Talk to them about this pandemic and keep it real. Be the trusted voice that people can see is out there that is providing information that is counter to the disinformation that's happening. There you go. And so that's where I am today. You know, I can't control what others say. Five years after that New York Times article, I just can dedicate myself to a new level of training for my students, which has been really fun in this pandemic. Uh, seriously, um, continual commitment to public education, uh, you know, this podcast and other efforts, got a book I'm putting together, and consistent production of good podcast material. This is stuff I can control. I can't control the other stuff. Control what you can, let go what you can't. And even though the negative stuff will follow me to the grave and will remove me from any conversations, I'm hoping that others would use that, not at pointing at it and say, look what a victim Fulta is, but by looking at it and saying, look, even when he was canceled, he still is pushing on and encouraging others and training others and providing the information to others to allow them to go out and engage scientific information or scientific disinformation. So thank you for listening. You know, all of you are the wind beneath my wings. If there were not listeners, I wouldn't do the podcast. Um, it, it's because of the outstanding uh, questions and comments and the engagement that happens around this podcast. Um, it is really a, a wonderful thing to uh, have people that listen and the reports come back every week and they still keep going up and getting better. You know, we share science from a place of love and kindness and we do our best to bring new technology to places where it could make the biggest difference. So the new technology in agriculture and animals and medicine that could aid the world's poorest uh, folks, the food insecure Technology to help farmers profit at a time when prices are horribly low. Uh, helping the environment. How do we make that better? And then taking, uh, pr producing better food with more uh, quality in fruits and vegetables and things like that for people in the industrialized world who eat too much of the wrong kind of thing. That's my mission and probably yours too. So we're doing this together. Uh, your reviews, your sharing this podcast with other uh, others, even just hitting the retweet button on Twitter or Facebook, or uh, you know, uh, share button, uh, that helps. That helps a lot. So please continue to share this work. The other thought is I'll leave you with is that I also get offers from companies that want to pay to be interviewed. No kidding, they want to be paid to be interviewed, and I don't do it. And they're waving around some big big numbers. Um, I don't want to turn this medium into an infomercial. 
I won't do it. So, you know, we're here to share good technology, stories of good technology. Sometimes that involves companies. But um, I'm not going to accept payment to uh, have an infomercial about their product. We're going to keep dedicating this to technology around biotechnology. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. I promise guests in the future. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.